John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I be- how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In 1976, Charles Colson published a book. You may recall that Charles Colson was one of uh, Nixon's staff who got uh, indicted in the Watergate affair and the cover-up, and he was one of those who spent time in prison. And in prison, he became a Christian. When he got out of prison, he wrote this book, and he called this book Born Again. That same year, the Democratic nominee was named Jimmy Carter, and he published a book that same year called Why Not the best. And in that book, he declared himself to be a born-again Christian. And those two books, and that candidacy, and the success of, uh, of Jimmy Carter, who became president, launched this expression into the vocabulary of the United States, uh, and not only in the church, where it had already been, but also into popular society. In 1979, Billy Preston and Sarita Wright sang a song, With You I Am Born Again. 1983, Black Sabbath uh, produced an album uh, called Born Again, and it had a 
one of the songs with the with the album title as well, and then a number of others. But it hasn't faded away. In 2016, Bon Jovi uh, published a a a song called "Born Again Tomorrow," and then in 2019, there's a a K-pop that's a Korean pop singer uh, who's named doesn't sound very Korean, but Tiffany Young. Uh, and she sings in English as well, and she's gone on her own, and she produced a solo song called Born Again. And so this has become part of the vocabulary of uh, the United States, and we've exported it apparently to Korea as well in popular culture. Now this idea of being born again has an inherent attraction to humans uh, for this reason. How many of us look back at our lives and would like to have a do-over? How many of us would would like to have uh, a chance to to begin again? How many of us would like to have an inner transformation, a, a significant change in our lives that would that would change the course of our lives? And so, this idea of starting over, of being born anew, is attractive not only in the church setting but in the wider culture, because we all look back and say, "I wish I could have another." Start. Well, today we're going to look at the source of that expression, which of course is Jesus, in this conversation he had with a man named Nicodemus. Now, it says here in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And it's, it's kind of a strange way to introduce Nicodemus by calling him a man. Now, uh, the reason it seems that he does that, if you look at the last verse of last week, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, well, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. And so what do we know? Jesus already knows all about this man because he doesn't need anybody to tell him what is in man. And now we have a man of the Pharisees coming to him. Now, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were religious leaders, one of the three major groups of religious leaders, religious uh, orders, if if you will, uh, among the Jews of Jesus' day. And they were the ones who emphasized strict observance of the law of God. But in their, in their zeal to obey the law of God, they had built many other laws and rules around the law of God to keep them from even getting near to disobeying the law of God. And they had added on many other rules that they scrupulously followed. Now, they may well have approved of Jesus' actions that we saw last week. Do you remember last week we saw Jesus come into the temple and drive out the flea market, drive out the the animals and the money changers? They may well have been at least secretly applauding Him. Why? Because those who were in charge of the temple were the Sadducees, and they were a rival religious group. Among the Jews. And so the Pharisees may have been uh, at least silently clapping as they saw Jesus clean out the temple where the, the, the Sadducees had allowed a marketplace to grow up. Now, uh, he approached Jesus by night, it says. And there are different ideas about why he did that. Look at verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, um, some just think that, well, that's when they weren't busy. And he thought, well, he could have an audience with Jesus. And that's actually a time when, when they would have philosophical and religious discussions at night. 
Others think that maybe he was trying to conceal his approach to Jesus, that, that, that he didn't really want people to see Jesus and to know that he was talking to Jesus. Uh, another idea is that this is symbolic because we have already seen light and darkness. Light and darkness that are uh, used in the book of John uh, symbolically. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now this man goes to Jesus when? By night. And so he may, may be indicating here, the author may be indicating here, that, that Nicodemus is still where? He's still in the darkness. And that's what we find in this conversation. Now, he goes to Jesus, and he begins to converse with him, and he's very respectful to Jesus. And this is somewhat surprising. He says to him, Rabbi, great one, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This looks like Jesus did other signs that we don't know about. We saw one sign last week and one symbolic action. Uh, the changing of water into wine. But that was in Cana, up in Galilee. And this is in Jerusalem. So it looks like Jesus did more signs. But he says, we know that you are a teacher from God. Because no one can do these things unless God is with him. So he recognized Jesus as a teacher. And this is a ruler among the Jews. And so this, this high-status individual is going to Jesus and recognizing Him as a teacher. And it says, we, we, uh, in indicating that not only Nicodemus, but probably some of his compatriots were recognizing that Jesus had come from God. So this is quite a, a compliment, it seems like, on Nicodemus's part. But, instead of being flattered by this recognition from this high-status individual, this distinguished leader, Jesus launched into His instruction to him and gave him shocking news. Shocking news. Uh, He said in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we've already seen how John likes to use words that have two meanings. And we have to try to decide what's the meaning here. This word that's often translated again also and usually means from above, born from above. And I I think actually that's probably the better translation here. Um, But John is leaving this, this kind of ambiguous. He says you must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, um, that is, is shocking. Because what would Nicodemus have thought? Nicodemus would have thought this. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must obey the law. And so Nicodemus would have thought, people like me, we will certainly see the kingdom of God. Why? Because we are the strictest about obeying the law. And Jesus comes and says, actually, you need a total makeover. You need a transformation. You need something that comes from on high. This is not something that you can produce. You need to be changed completely in order to see the kingdom of God. Even Nicodemus, even the ruler of the Jews, needs that kind of new start, inward transformation. Now, interpreting literally and um, taking the word to mean again 
because it was ambiguous, Nicodemus was incredulous. Verse 4, Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, by the way, here's another technique of the author of the fourth gospel. There, uh, Jesus says something people misunderstand badly. Jesus explains, clarifies, and then eventually there is a response. And so we see that pattern here. Uh, that Jesus teaches a, 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 a very blatant misunderstanding. Jesus clarifies, and then eventually a response. And so Jesus' clarification says this in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this verse has raised many questions. What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? And there are many different interpretations. But I think we can cut through the various interpretations by recognizing one thing. And that is, Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand him. If you look at verses 9 and 10, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus once again says, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet do not understand these things? So in other words, Jesus expected the teacher in Israel, with his Old Testament background, to be able to understand what it means to be born from above, and to be born of water and the Spirit. So where should we look? If we're going to try to figure out what water and spirit mean, where should we look? We should look in the Old Testament, and that's what we're going to do. Um, if you look at, for example, Isaiah chapter 44, uh, verse 3, and I have it here for you, it says this, and this is Hebrew parallel poetry. It says, it, it, puts, it puts two concepts in parallel because they're, they're very similar to each other. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And the way we should read that is this. this is, these are not two things. These are the same thing but expressed two different ways. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That is to say, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So water and spirit are not two things, but the same thing in this verse. In Ezekiel, however, we find the two together with a bit of a distinction. And if you look at Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25, Ezekiel says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." So here we have the two elements again, water and spirit, that go together. But there's a little bit of a distinction here, isn't there? Because water indicates what? Cleansing. And spirit indicates inward transformation. Getting rid of that, that heart of stone and giving a heart that is sensitive to God. So, if we go back to Jesus and He says you must be born from above, that is to say you must be born of water and spirit. That is to say you need a total cleansing and you need a complete inner transformation. And then, if you go down and look, He says uh, in verse 
8, he says, So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There he drops out water. And so we see these three expressions, born from above, born of water and spirit, and born of the Spirit. And he's not talking about different things. He's talking about the same experience. Now, this is, this is shocking to, to, uh, to Nicodemus. And he just can't get over the, the shock of this. That somebody like him would need this kind of radical change. And if you look at the illustrations, if you think about this, uh, the illustration of being born. Let me ask you all this. How many of you were born? Everyone, right? Okay. Um, How many of you birthed yourself? None. Who did the birthing? Mom. Mom did. And some of us have our moms here. They did all the work. And so if you would go to uh, an unborn child still in his mother's womb, and say, be born. If that child could hear you and reason, the child would say, "Um, that's not my work. I can't do that. Somebody else must do that for me. And so this image of being born, in and of itself, it it illustrates that, that we have to have something that we ourselves cannot bring about. And then he adds to that another illustration. After, after this confusion of Nicodemus, he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The wind. We had quite a, uh, a wind come in yesterday, and we went out to walk on the beach. We were about the only ones out there except for the kite surfers. And uh, the wind was whipping 20 miles an hour, gusts that were faster than that. The, you could see the sand ripping down the beach, and the waves were furious. And so it was a glorious time to be on the beach and see the, 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 the fury uh, of the wind and the waves. Um, but um, I couldn't control that wind. And in fact... We decided to walk north because we really had to, uh, to exert effort to, to go against that wind. But I have no idea from where that wind came except from somewhere in the north. And, and I really don't know where it went from here. And I couldn't control that wind. There's nothing I could do to control it. It's beyond me. And so these two illustrations illustrate or, or emphasize that this birth from above, that this birth by water and spirit, that this being born of the spirit is not our work. It is beyond us. It is something we cannot do, like birth itself, like the wind itself. When we moved here, we had only seen our, our uh, the place we bought um, once uh, before we made an offer. And we didn't ask many questions. But once we got into the community, people said, oh, yeah, I remember when your place flooded. Yeah, the water was coming out the, the front door. It had gone all the way down from the, the top, and uh, it was coming out the front door. I said, flooded. Okay, well, that, that makes some sense because some of the things we were seeing in there. And it must have, it must have rained down in the kitchen because we found, uh, once we looked more closely, uh, a lot of problems in the kitchen, black mold and, and all sort of things, and that they had sort of slapped it back together uh, with super glue or something to, to try to make it presentable. Well, so we, we decided we wanted to change some things in the kitchen. So we went to a, a, a kitchen store, 
And we were just thinking, well, maybe we can get rid of this, this broken Formica and we can, we can get a, a better countertop and probably have to get a sink and, and, uh, and, and a backsplash and we'll just leave it at that. And so we go to a kitchen store. Now what, at kitchen stores, what do they sell? Kitchens. Right. And so they have these designers there and I took some pictures in and, and the, the lady said, I said, well, we just want to do this. She said, oh yeah, you definitely need to do that. But, but you also need new cabinets, of course. You can't do this without doing that. And then she's got a picture of the floor. She said, oh, that floor. Oh, you got to, you got to change that floor. And she just, she, she wanted to, she wanted a, a complete makeover. And I was just getting more and more depressed. And I said, uh, I said, well, we did, we, we can't do that. And I said, I'd be happy to do that if you'll pay for it. But for some reason, she was unwilling to pay for it as well. And so I walked out of there knowing that we needed something. We needed a complete makeover of our kitchen that I couldn't bring about. I couldn't afford it. And she was unwilling to. And she probably couldn't afford it either. But see, this is different. When it comes to being born from above, born of the Spirit, born of water and the Spirit... We can't do that. But God can. God can. And He's the only one who can. Now, Jesus continued the conversation, but Nicodemus faded out of the conversation. Maybe he left that conversation like I left that kitchen store, wondering what on earth he was going to do because he was just informed about something he could not bring about. And as he faded out of the conversation, Jesus went on rebuking him for not understanding. Verses 9 to 13, we already saw that he said, you're a teacher in Israel. How do you not understand these things? And then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Let's just stop and ask, who are the we here? We've already seen that, that this gospel is presenting a series of witnesses who will testify. And now Jesus is saying, we testify. And it looks like Jesus is saying, my Father and I testify. And that will become clearer later. But then it says, we testify to what we have seen, but you, and that you is plural. And so here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus, just two persons present. But Jesus says, we testify, and you all do not receive our testimony. And this reminds us of what we heard in chapter 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And here is Nicodemus, one of his own, the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. And then Jesus appealed to his superior vantage point. Verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things about wind and about birth, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And his, his, his vantage point, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, that's always how Jesus refers to himself. So he's, he's, he's talking about himself here. So he says, I'm talking to you about these things because I know about these things because I have come from heaven, and so I can witness about these things. And then, Jesus concludes His words with, with a, a, a kind of unusual reference here. He says, And as Moses, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And we already looked at this text from Numbers chapter 21, verses 9 to 13, or 4 to 13. And in, in, in these verses, there was rebellion among the people. They were complaining against the Lord in the wilderness. And uh, God, in punishment, sent fiery serpents among them. They were venomous. They, they bit a number of the people. A number of them died. They cried out for mercy. And God said to do something unusual. He said, take a staff, make a, a, a figure of a bronze serpent, a fiery serpent, raise it up, and whoever looks at that serpent will live. And that's what happened. As many who looked upon that serpent were cured from that venomous bite. And here, Jesus compares that serpent being lifted up in the wilderness to what would happen to the Son of Man, that the Son of Man would be lifted up. He just talked about ascending and descending, and he talked about that last week, and now he says that the Son of Man, like that serpent, is going to be lifted up. And this happens all through this. Keep this in mind. Throughout this Gospel of John, we will keep hearing about the Son being lifted up, being lifted up, and we find that His being lifted up was being lifted up on a cross. He would be lifted up on a Roman cross so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That's the news. The Son of Man would be lifted up on a cross. Whoever looks to Him in faith will have eternal life. And here it looks like the words of Jesus end and the the narrator, the author here, comments on Jesus' words. And here we have in verse 16 the beginning of those comments, and verse 16 is probably, if not the most known verse of Scripture, one of the best known verses of Scripture. And it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that is so familiar that sometimes we we may misread it. Particularly that word so, because that's ambiguous in English. We read it like this, for God loved the world so much. But we should read it like this, for God loved the world in this way. That is so, in this way. Thus, how did God love the world? What did God do to express His love for the world? And the answer is, He gave His only Son. That's the answer. He gave His only Son. And the result of that is that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And here we see contrasts, contrasting pairs. Eternal life and perishing or being destroyed. And that was the contrast in the time of the the bronze serpent, wasn't it? Those were the two options. Being bit by the venomous serpent and perishing and being destroyed or looking at that serpent lifted up and living. And he says that's the same thing now. That whoever believes on this Son who is lifted up will have eternal life. And then the commentary goes on that God's purpose in sending His Son into the world was not to condemn the world, verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. If you ask the question, why? Why did God send His Son into the world? The answer is, so that the world might be saved through Him. By the way, do you remember what we saw about the meaning of the word world? The meaning of the word world in John is rebellious humanity. So this is quite remarkable. 
that God would love rebellious humanity. And this is even more astounding, that God would send His only Son to be lifted up on the cross for rebellious humanity. And that the result of God sending His Son to rebellious humanity to be lifted up on the cross, if they would believe, would be that they would be saved. And here we have these these contrasting pairs. We have perishing and we have condemnation on one side, and we have eternal life and salvation on the other side. Disbelieve in this Son who is lifted up, and you remain in condemnation and you perish. Believe, and you receive eternal life, salvation. Because even though the purpose of God, the purpose of God in sending His Son was not to condemn, the result is that there will be a division in humanity. And it says here in verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, he didn't send his Son into the world in order to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. And, and, and if, if someone rejects the Son who was lifted up on the cross and, and refuses to believe in the Son, then that person simply remains in the state in which he or she already was. It wasn't the purpose of God to send the Son to condemn, but it will be the result for those who do not believe in the Son. Now, why would anybody, why would anybody reject the Son? The Son of God sent into the world, lifted up on the cross. Why would anybody? Well, the author tells us in verse 19, tragically, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Why would anybody reject this offered salvation? Well, because they love their works. They love their rebellion. And they don't want their rebellion to be exposed by the light, and so they stay as far as away as they can from the light. But thanks be to God, not all remain in their condemnation. Not all remain in their darkness. Not all remain cherishing their, their rebellious lives. In verse 21 it says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there is a coming to the light. But that coming to the light and the the change that happens in that person's life when that person comes to the light is wrought by God. And so nobody can can come to the light and say, look what I did. I came to the light. No, this, this text is shot through with the fact that this is all the work of God. Coming to the light and being transformed by Him. So what have we heard? We've heard about three things in this text. The three things are these. Something we need and cannot ourselves bring about. Now that news that we need something that we cannot bring about may lead us to despair. Like I was after coming out of that, uh, that kitchen store. But if, 
it leads us to despair, that is not a bad thing. Because that teaches us where we are, that teaches us what we cannot do, and that teaches us where we must find rescue from our estate. And then we heard about what Jesus would do. He would be lifted up on the cross to die for all who will trust in Him. And then we heard, in the third place, about what we must do in response to His being lifted up on the cross. We must believe in Him to have eternal life. Now, believing is such a simple thing that the illustration that's used here of believing is looking. Everybody who looked at the serpent, that's all they had to do. Everyone who looked, lived. And everyone who looks in faith to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross will live. One of the um, most famous conversions to Christ in modern times was a pastor who ministered in in uh, London, over a hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon. He grew up in a Christian family. His grandfather was a pastor. His father was a pastor. His mother was a devout Christian. And he was a miserable young man. Because even as a teenager, 15, 16 years old, he, 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 thought, he, was, he thought he was condemned. He, he did not know how he could have eternal life. And in his glum estate, one One Sunday, he went out to go look for a church where maybe somebody could tell him how he could be saved. But there was a great snowstorm that fell that Sunday, and he didn't get far. And he tells the story like this. He said, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there are maybe a dozen or fifteen people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce his words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex accent, what I can't do. Um, Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. 
Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw it once. The way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone and darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I don't know if anybody has told you this before today, but I tell you today, trust Christ and you will be saved. Look and live. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for loving, rebellious humanity so much that You sent Your Son who was lifted up on the cross that we might look to Him in faith and live. And I pray for all of us here under the sound of this simple text that we would all look to Christ and live forever. That we would not remain in our condemnation, but that we would be saved. And we pray this in His name. Amen.